Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Well, amen. Let me say what a joy and delight it is to be here in Moore County on this Lord's Day to bring you greetings from the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Your seminary, uh, just a hop, skip, and a jump from here in beautiful Fort Worth, uh, Texas. And uh, one of the things I love to do everywhere I have the chance to, uh, to minister the Word of God, but especially here in our great state, is just to say thank you on behalf of our 4,000 current students and our 41,000 living alumni for what you do that makes possible our work at Southwestern Seminary. I know because uh, your pastor and I had a delightful uh, dinner uh, together last night that uh, you all support our work directly uh, financially, and I'm very thankful for uh, that, but you also support us uh, just in terms of your prayers, and certainly that is something that I have felt. Now, uh, these uh, three and a half years I've been the president of Southwestern Seminary, uh, your pastor alluded to a line that I've used uh, when people have asked me, uh, what has it been like being the president of Southwestern Seminary? And I've said, well, it was not just uh, coming back to uh, my alma mater. I graduated with my uh, Master of Divinity with Biblical Languages degree 20 years ago this, uh, this month. Uh, and my wife's alma mater, we met at Southwestern Seminary. She graduated 20 years ago this uh, coming December. But it was coming into an institution filled with opportunities cleverly and disguised as problems. And, uh, and I like solving problems. And uh, a lot of those problems uh, I, I knew about. The search committee told me about them. In fact, you could have known about them because you just needed to do a quick uh, Southwestern Seminary Google search, and you could have read about a bunch of the problems that were happening uh, there. I, I half-heartedly joke, though, that I, I just wish the search committee would have told me about what was going to happen right around the one-year anniversary of my election as president when this global pandemic thing was going to happen. I, I, I wish I'd have been told that because it sure would have made life a whole lot easier, you know. I, I wish I'd have been told that that was going to happen because I might have led our uh, investment uh, committee of our board to move a lot of our endowment into Purell stock, right? We probably could have cashed in significantly, Zane, had we done that and really helped uh, our financial base. I, I wish I would have known that the uh, face mask was going to become the fashion accessory of choice, without which, until recently, you couldn't travel anywhere in our country on an airplane without having to put on one of those uh, uh, things, and so much more that has happened. In fact, imagine if I would have come here three years ago and told you that the time was going to come soon. When churches all across our land would have to stop having in-person worship services, in many cases for the first time in their history. You'd have looked at me as if I'd had three heads. You thought I was crazy. And uh, all that has happened since that time. We're prayerfully on the other side of most of the ravages of COVID-19. And one of the questions that I've been asked often by people, and one of the questions I think we have to look at is, what, what is the new normal going to look like on the other side of COVID-19? And I'll tell you this, 
We all want to get back to normal, but I'm going to go ahead and just suggest to you that I don't know that uh, we're ever getting back to how things used to be. I, I think some things have changed probably forever. And that's not all entirely bad, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. But as you're turning to Acts chapter 8 in your copy of God's Word, either in print or electronic form, I want to go ahead and begin with the end in mind in terms of telling you where I'm going in terms of my message this morning. Here is the, the, the thesis, the, the main point of, of the message. Everything has changed, and yet nothing has changed. Everything has changed, and yet nothing has changed. And I take from my text a familiar passage, if you've studied the Word of God, Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at the first eight verses together. I know we have folks joining us via live stream this morning. We welcome them. But if you are here in this sanctuary, I want to invite you to stand with me one more time. We might honor the public reading of the Word of God together this morning. And let me just invite you to follow along in your hearts as I share this word from God's Word. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And this morning I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, where the Bible says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed and Many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. This is the word of our Lord. And thanks be to God this morning. Please be seated and may God richly bless the reading and study of his word together this morning. Now, as I'm sure your pastor has well taught you, when you jump into a, uh, a narrative passage like Acts 8 1, where we're reading about Saul and uh, putting someone to death, we're really kind of jumping into a flow of uh, history that we need to get caught up on what's been happening because after all, a text without a context is just a proof text for somebody's pretext, right? So we want to make sure we situate ourselves uh, properly. And so uh, Saul, uh, we meet back in the tail end of uh, Acts 7. And Saul we meet in the context of he's the guy who is there holding the coats of the folks who are murdering, martyring, stoning Stephen. Stephen is the him there in Acts 8.1. And uh, Stephen we meet a chapter earlier than Acts 7 back in Acts 6 when Stephen is part of this uh, sevenfold solution to an early church uh, controversy and conflict about uh, claims that uh, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews, their widows, weren't getting an equal distribution in the uh, portion of uh, earthly goods. Uh, really an underlying accusation of uh, racism and partiality and prejudice that could have torn that church uh, wide open, but God in His sovereignty led the apostles to set aside seven guys uh, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, put over that task of uh, table waiting and needs meeting so that they could give themselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. And of those seven guys that we get their names in Acts 6, five of those guys we never hear about again. Two of them we do. Uh, but interestingly enough, especially since um, many of our uh, pastors preach uh, Acts 6, as the model for deacon ministry, if you will, in the church. Interestingly enough, we never see any of these guys actually waiting any tables. 
But what we do see them doing is powerfully preaching and proclaiming Christ. And the first one of those guys is Stephen. And if you read Acts 6 and Acts 7, Stephen was a bold, unashamed, unafraid preacher of the good news of Christ. I mean, he just called it like it was. And, you know, a lot of times when folks don't like the message, they'll oftentimes try to attack or to silence or to shut up the messenger. And that's what happens with Stephen by the end of Acts 7. Folks decide they don't like what he's preaching, and so they decide to take out the preacher. And that's where we come into here in Acts 8.1. Saul agreed with putting him, Stephen, to death. And then our text continues. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And then notice this next phrase. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Let's pause there. Now, if, uh, if you started your new year off right back in January with your read through the Bible in a year plan, and we all should do that, shouldn't we? Uh, you're going to get to your assigned passage for Acts 8, 1 and following, and you're just going to kind of make a beeline right on through Acts 8, 1 to get to Acts 8, 2 and Acts 8, 3 and Acts 8, 4 because you got a lot of verses to go and a short time to get there, and you might miss the enormity of what is contained in less than one half of one verse of New Testament text. Because in just... A few short words here. Do you realize, my friends, that everything changed? Jerusalem, which had been the epicenter of the church's ministry since the beginning. In fact, let's just take a little quick five-minute survey of uh, New Testament church history one, right? I realize it's not Southwestern Seminary classroom, but you can do for one for just a few moments, right? The church began with Jesus. Amen. He's the Lord of the church. He founded the church. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. In response to Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is not the rock, as our Roman Catholic friends say, but it was Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the Lord of the church. Jesus began the church. And we read through the Gospels. Jesus says, Here's the mission. Here's the agenda. We're going to Jerusalem where I'm going to die. I'm going to die as a ransom, as an atonement for sin. But three days later, I'm coming back to show you that I've conquered the greatest problem you're ever going to face, death. And so we just went through the Easter season, right, last month. And so we remember Jesus there on that first Palm Sunday goes into Jerusalem to those triumphal shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But we get to Monday, Thursday, where Jesus meets with his disciples and he instantiates the Lord's Supper in that upper room where he says, this is my body and this is my blood. These things are for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Even as the one who would betray him was there, Judas Iscariot. All in Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem. He went out that night to a garden, Gethsemane, and he looked in that bitter cup of the sin that he would drink for you and for me, our sin. And with sweat drops of blood, he prayed, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. In fact, the ultimate act of surrender and submission is always not my will, but thine be done, which is what Jesus says right there in that moment. He was in Jerusalem 
where on that first Good Friday morning, Jesus carried his own cross up Calvary's hill until he collapsed under the weight of it, and Simon of Cyrene picked up the rest of the way. It was in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified between two thieves, two who died very justly, one who was crucified very unjustly. It was in Jerusalem where Jesus cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished! Redemption accomplished and applied at the cross. It was in Jerusalem where Jesus died for your sin and for mine. It was in Jerusalem where Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. It was in Jerusalem where on that first Easter Sunday morning, the angels met the women there at that tomb saying, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here for he is risen just as he said. Now go to Jerusalem and find him there. It was in Jerusalem where Jesus met with his disciples after his resurrection, the 12 having become the 11. Of course, that first time the 11 became the 10 because Thomas was not there. And, you know, that's how the old preachers used to kind of wax eloquently on don't miss Sunday night church because Jesus might show up. Amen. And, uh, but the next week, Thomas is there and Jesus makes a beeline to him and says, son, you need proof. Here's proof. Put your hands in my scars. Feel the nail prints. Don't be unbelieving, but only believe. And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God, acknowledging the divinity and deity of Jesus, worshiping him. It's in Jerusalem where Jesus restored Peter three times after Peter denied him three times. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. It was in Jerusalem where Jesus gave the Great Commission five times, once in each of the four Gospels, and there in Acts 1-8, telling his disciples they would live for him on mission. It was in Jerusalem, there in Acts 1, where Jesus was taken up from them in his ascension in power and in glory, going back to the Father. It was in Jerusalem where that uh, 11 of uh, the disciples turned into a prayer meeting of 120 in the upper room, praying and waiting for Pentecost to come. It was in Jerusalem where in Acts 2, the fire of God falls in Pentecost, the gift of languages is given, it spills onto the streets, Peter preaches probably about a 10-minute message, and 3,000 are gloriously saved in one fell swoop. And Acts 2, uh, it concludes there saying, and day by day, people were being saved as they went house to house. You realize the enormity of that? You know, do y'all know folks can get saved on a Monday morning? For real. We almost never hear about it, but it actually can happen, right? Folks getting saved on a Thursday night, even a Saturday afternoon. To the point of which B.H. Carroll, the founder of Southwestern Seminary, a biblical scholar, said that in a period of six months, that early church went from 120 in that upper room prayer meeting to over 60,000 believers there in Jerusalem. And uh, Pastor Matthew, they didn't have any of the things that the gurus and the consultants and the experts say you got to have to grow a big church today because they didn't have one deed to one piece of property in their own name. They didn't have a huge paid staff. They didn't have a marketing and communication budget. But the one thing they had may be the one thing that your church and our churches need more than anything else today. They had the undiminished, undiluted power of the Spirit of God operating in their midst. And folks, if you've got that, you don't need any of the other stuff. In fact, I wonder if part of our problem is in American churchianity is for too long we've become satisfied and content to try to do ministry apart from the infilling and the indwelling and the empowering work of the Spirit of God. And so we've had the results of what man can do rather than the results of what only God can do. Text continues on, Acts 3 and Acts 4. They keep preaching, people keep being saved, 5,000 saved at once. We get the first example of uh, pushback there in Acts 
3 and Acts 4 when the uh, leaders uh, become a little agitated. They try to tell Peter and John to sit down and shut up, quit preaching Jesus. And Peter, still full of that fire from Pentecost, says, hey, guys, you can do what you want to do. We're going to keep preaching Jesus. You remember Jesus, don't you? You crucified him, but God raised him up. And now there is salvation in no other name given among men under heaven. Acts 4.12. Acts 5, the first example of divine church discipline there with Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Lord about their giving, purifying the church. We've already talked about Acts 6 and Acts 7. So in my little five-minute survey of uh, New Testament church history 1, what have we noticed? What does it all have in common? It was all Jerusalem all the time. Right? Right? But let's read again there in Acts 8.1. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. In one fell swoop, everything changed. And it changed in such a way to where if we can just be candid with one another, and I know in the panhandle of Texas we're known for our candor, um, it would make what we've gone through these last two years look like a cakewalk compared to what these people went through. Because last time I checked, even in the midst of all the social distancing and masking up and hand sanitizing and all that, you still got to go to your own home at night, put your own head on your own pillow without fear or concern that somebody was going to come, roust you out of bed, kick you out of your house and say, you can never come back to Moore County again. But church historians tell us that after this diaspora, the church in Jerusalem never gathered together again in the same size, scope, or significance this side of eternity. We don't realize what real adversity is like. And the text continues, verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. If you enjoy studying the Bible in the original languages, you'll know that term translated ravaging from the Greek uh, occurs only here in the entire New Testament. And it means with a kind of uh, savage ferocity, with a kind of virulence or a violence, if you will. And uh, Dr. Luke goes on to describe this a little bit. He says, he, being Saul, would enter house after house, drag off men and women and put them in prison. This is hardly your best life now kind of theology. I mean, this is the cost of discipleship. By the way, notice the contrast. The disciples were going house to house preaching Christ. Saul is going house to house persecuting Christ. I mean, it's serious business. And so wouldn't it be instructive for us, in light of what we've gone through these last two years, to take some solace and comfort in the example of what these believers did when faced with their adversity again an adversity far more consequential than anything that we have faced verse 4 so those who were scattered raised their voices to God and cried and complained about the unfairness and inconvenience of it all is that what the text says okay this means yes this means no this means help right no is the answer you're looking for right but bless your heart. And you know what that means in the South and in Texas, right? Had there been a Baptist or two in that crowd, that's exactly what we would have done. What's that old line? 
Wherever two or three Baptists are gathered together, there are at least four or five opinions and complaints present, right? And we laugh because we know that's us. Like that old Pogo cartoon, we've met the enemy and it is us, right? Nothing has proven that truism more than the last two years of COVID-19. I mean, I'm telling you, the enemy has almost had a field day in our churches because, and I talk to pastors regularly, I'm still a pastor at heart. Anybody who steps out of the pastorate steps down, not up. And nobody's taken it more on the chin these last two plus years than our pastors and our staff because they get it from all sides. Because you got church people who say, you're not taking this seriously enough, you're taking it too seriously. Put on a mask, take off that mask, come give me a hug, stay six feet away from me, and everything in between. I mean, I know people who've left their church over their church's response or non-response to COVID-19. And all hell laughs. Because the enemy is far too successful at getting us at times to take our eyes off of the Lord and our eyes off of the lost and put our eyes on ourselves and each other. And we'll spend more time arguing and debating and fighting over our convenience and our preferences and our wants and me and I and my. And every time we do that, we're drifting from the mission. See, maybe it's just good to be reminded that the local visible New Testament church is the only, if you want to use the, uh, the, the secular language, nonprofit organization in the community that does not primarily exist for the benefit of its own members. Or to put it differently, the primary purpose of the church is not for those who are already here. But it's for those who are not yet here, those who are still far from God, who need to come to know Christ. And yet for so long, we had it so good that, if I can put it this way, we got kind of fat, happy, and lazy, spiritually speaking. We became content with that kind of field of dreams idea that says, hey, if you build it, they'll come. I mean, folks would know where our church is. When they want to come, they'll come until they can't come when we don't have services and we've shut down because of a global pandemic. You see, somehow, we, we lost track and lost sight of the mission. We became satisfied and content to go through the motions, to do our thing. I never really ask, are we doing what we're supposed to be doing, what Jesus called us to do? Now, that's not new. In fact, hold your place here in Acts 8, and let's just go back a little bit to Acts chapter 1. Hold your place in Acts 8. Just turn or scroll back to Acts 1. We're going to look at one of the most familiar renderings of the Great Commission. In fact, many of you could probably quote this to me, but it's just good to put your eyes back on it, afresh and anew, Acts 1. And, of course, in the five uh, renderings of the Great Commission, in terms of the way your Bible is uh, sequentially ordered, this is the last in terms of placement. So, in some ways, these are the last Recorded words of Jesus prior to his ascension, his farewell address. And notice what Jesus says, verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. 
and ye will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, there's been a lot of interest in Baptist life in recent years about uh, developing a so-called Acts 1-8 strategy. You need to have an Acts 1-8 strategy. And we've had uh, mission board leaders and convention leaders encourage us in this direction. That's not a bad thing in and of itself. You know, you need to reach your Jerusalem, uh, let's say uh, here in, in Moore County. You need, you need to reach your Judea and Samaria, all the Texas panhandle perhaps and, and beyond. You need to reach, uh, you know, the world, amen, Texas, America, and the nations. But remember, before Acts 1-8 was meant to be a blueprint for your church's mission strategy, Acts 1-8 was the church's mission strategy. And these are concentric circles, right? So from the beginning, the vision is we're reaching our Jerusalem, and we're reaching our Judea and Samaria, and we're reaching the world together. But do you remember that little survey of New Testament church history, one we did a few minutes ago? What do Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 6, and Acts 7 all have in common? It was all Jerusalem all the time. And one has to wonder if it had stayed that way. Because life was good. They were seeing success. Numbers were up. Life was good. They could point to a sense of accomplishment. The problem was they just weren't actually fulfilling the entirety of the mission. And so hear me. It took a divinely allowed disruption to shake that church to the core of its being, to dislodge it from where it was, to actually propel that church on to fulfilling the mission. As a child of the 80s, I remember watching those Sunday morning cartoons growing up, and uh, you'd have these little cartoon characters, and whenever they would have an idea or something would click, you'd see the little cloud up, uh, up here above the head and the little light bulb, ding, right? Like it, like it, it just came together, it just, it just, the light bulb came on. I imagine that is exactly what happened back in Acts 8. And the church of Jerusalem was scattered in all Judea and Samaria. And all of a sudden, something clicked, and they went, whoa! Oh, yeah! That's what we were supposed to be doing all along. In fact, to put it a little differently, we don't actually see the true beginning of the fulfillment of the Acts 1-8 vision without the divinely allowed disruption of Acts 8-1. In fact, you don't have Acts 1-8 without Acts 8-1 in terms of New Testament history. That's why we see what looks like almost a non-response back in Acts 8, verse 4, when the Bible says, So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the word. In a moment where everything had changed, they respond and react like nothing had changed. How can that be other than in that moment, those words of Jesus began to ring afresh and anew in their ears. And they went, oh. Would to God that after all that we've been through these last two years, that the words of Jesus might ring afresh and anew in our ears. 
to shake us out of our apathy, our lethargy, our comfort, and our convenience. To motivate and to mobilize us to actually get serious about the mission that Christ has given to us. You see, somehow, again, we've been led to think that it's okay that we show up and there are empty seats in the pews. Do you know what every seat that's empty in every pew represents in a church? It represents somebody in our community that evidently we didn't love enough this week to share Jesus with them or to invite them to be here this morning. And that statistic is still true that 100% of those that we do not invite will not come. And 100% of those that we do not share Christ with will not respond and believe. Doesn't mean they all will, but many will. And evidently we've become satisfied over the years to come in Sunday after Sunday and see empty seats, empty pews, and to be unmoved by what that represents in terms of the eternal stakes. My guess is we could stop and have testimony time, and every one of you could tell me your COVID-19 story. You know somebody, family member, loved one, neighbor, schoolmate, somebody, co-worker, that was alive three years ago that is not today because of COVID-19 or its effects. And when all is said and done, what matters most is what did that person do with Christ? That's why we see what we see here in Acts 8, verse 5. Philip, Philip's the second one of those deacons. Again, we never see him waiting any tables, but man, he's a powerful, he's a soul-winning evangelist. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Verse 8. And if you take notes in your Bible, you ought to put red flashing neon lights around verse 8, Acts chapter 8. So there was great joy in that city. First Baptist Church Dumas, let me remind you lovingly, the reason you exist is that there might be great joy in the city of Dumas. That there might be great joy in Moore County. There might be great joy across this panhandle. There might be great joy across our state, across our country, and to the nations. Because from you, the good news of Christ sounds forth. And that you're working diligently to make it as humanly impossible for anybody to die in the city of Dumas and to go into a Christless eternity. For anybody to die in Moore County and to go into a Christless eternity. And until our hearts begin to break and our eyes begin to weep over the fact that there are people who are dying lost and doomed in darkness, far from God, who need Christ. Something's got to change. In a moment, in one fell swoop, for these, everything changed. And yet they respond and react like nothing had changed. Would to God that after two years of pandemic and disruption, inconvenience, challenge, that we would rise up and meet the moment of what I believe God is trying to give us a window of opportunity to do. And that is to fulfill the mission 
to do what we can while we can to connect all people to Jesus Christ, to help those who are far from God come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what matters most. It always has. And it always will. First Baptist Church, what are you doing to fulfill the mission? In a moment where everything has changed, but our marching orders have not and will not change. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we're thankful for these moments together around your word. God, you're so wonderfully good to us. You are better than we deserve because what we deserve is death and hell. What we deserve is to be eternally separated from you. But Lord, in your loving kindness, you've given to us everything. A new name, a new family, a new purpose, a new destiny. Lord, as we move into this time of invitation and response, we pray, Spirit of God, fall fresh upon us. Have your way, O Lord. Do what only you can do to draw men and women, boys and girls, to yourself. Have your own way, Lord. Lead God and direct in all things. We pray this by the Spirit, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.